Uh, let's get into that by talking about Gemmins for a moment. Okay, Gemmins, this little hardware store that's been in downtown Hudsonville like my entire life. Gemmins, this place that my father-in-law likes to joke as his second home, right? Gemmins, this place that I drew a line in the sand. Gemmins, okay? I'm not exactly sure why I chose this place or this time, but one day this local hardware store decided to do the thing that everybody else was doing and they started a rewards program, right? Sign up now, get 10% off of your $50 purchase or whatever. And, and every single time I was there, they would ask, hey, do you want to sign up for that? And I always said no. And I must have been like in the middle of a big project or something because I was like going there almost every day for different parts and things like that. And they would ask a lot. And I always said no. And my reasoning for better or for worse on this, is that I don't want to give the almighty algorithm the information of what I'm buying for my house. Which is kind of silly because I shop at Amazon all the time. And like there's a huge like buying history of me on the internet, right? But for whatever reason, I was drawing the line here. Big algorithm was not going to get me at my hardware store. And I was passionate about it. This one area of my life is going to be walled off, be sequestered. The types of hoses and bird feeders I buy is going to be my business and my business only. It was a crusade. And for years, this was the case. This was the crusade. For years, I held on tightly to this. But they got me this year. They finally wore me down. One day... It was this bigger purchase and there was a special discount for the members of the club, right? And I got like a 25% discount from the app online. I just couldn't say no, just couldn't say. The reward I got for membership was too great. So I caved, I folded, I signed up. And now I am a member of the rewards program and I hang my head in shame. I mean, I sold them my digital privacy for half off of a cordless drill. I mean, it was a really good deal. You guys should shop there. It's great. And this is the problem with the world, believe it or not. Not Gemmins. They're not the problem. They're great. I love them. But the problem with the world we live in with our culture is that experience is ubiquitous. Everything in our world is that kind of exchange, is that kind of transaction. I mean, I've got a senior in high school and the college you choose is like a big transactional exchange conversation. What college will I go to? What, what will it cost me? What will I get from, out of it? Your job, what are the benefits? How often can I work from home? How much travel? It's all about this calculus of what does the rewards program here do for me? And it's the way our world works about everything. And so it is natural that our marriages turn into transactions, our friendships turn into transactions, and our churches turn into transactions. What will it cost me? My attendance, maybe some volunteer time, maybe a little money in the offering plate, but what do I get out of it? Do I get some preaching that I like? Do I get a place for my kids to hear about Jesus? Maybe I make some friends. 
Or perhaps I just get like the peace of mind of I'm right with God if I fulfill my end of the bargain. And it's not your fault. Thinking this way is not your fault. It is the way the culture works. It's not your fault. It is the Costco membership's fault, right? It's the the Speedway Speedy Rewards Program's fault. It's the Fresh Step Kitty Litter Paw Points Rewards Program's fault. Believe it or not, there's a rewards program for your kitty litter. You didn't even know that was there, but you could, I don't know, save a ton on kitty litter, I guess. But we are a culture of transaction, not commitment. And we've taken that into every area of our life and even the church. And while the church used to stand uh, out in the culture a little differently, today it's just as much of an exchange, just as much of a rewards program as everything else. Which means the church now has a question about how do we actually matter in this kind of world, in this kind of culture? Because for, for many of us, the church doesn't matter anymore. I mean, you've driven by the churches that perhaps were once and alive and growing and now have a for sale sign on the property. You know, people who used to go to church for a whole plethora of reasons, they just don't anymore. I mean, I believe in Jesus, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious and a church isn't really a thing for me. Maybe you feel that one. Now, I'm not criticizing that. I'm simply noticing it. I'm observing it. And as I notice that's the way our world works, I'm asking in the midst of such a non-committal culture, does the church even matter anymore? In the midst of a transactional reward-oriented world, how does the church work today? That's the question I, I, I'm wrestling with. And that's the question we're wrestling with in this series that we're calling Why the Church Matters. Because spoiler alert, I'll, I'll spoil it for you. I think it does. I think it still matters. But the, the, the way we're going to talk about this conversation uh, in this series is how do we help make the church matter today in this culture that we live in right now? What does it mean to be the church in a way that matters to our world? And so today we're going to explore a little bit uh, out of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12. If you have a Bible or an app and you want to follow along, we'll be in in that chapter. Uh, 1 Corinthians was uh, originally a letter written by a man named Paul to a church that he planted, that he started in a city called Corinth. So imagine uh, I, was the, I was the planter of this church and imagine one day I'm, I'm gone, I'm off somewhere and I just wrote a letter to you about what does it mean for you to be a church here in Jamestown. That's what's happening in this book. And in chapter 12, he is essentially telling the church who they are. He's reminding them of like, this is who and what you are and why being that matters in your town of Corinth in the first century. And as we go through this this piece of the letter, um, within what he says in his description, I think I can see four different ways in which the church actually works, not only in their world, but in our world today, in a world that increasingly devalues what the church tends to be. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 today, and we're going to look at four different ways in which the the church works 
and how it can matter in the world we live in today. So let's start out with 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to start with verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So again, this is Paul, the church planner, talking to his friends at the church, and he's talking to them about the church. And he doesn't talk to them about the building, right? Whatever that meant for them back then. He doesn't talk to them about theology. He doesn't talk to them about a belief. This is the right way to think or believe, right? He doesn't even talk about gathering together as a group of people in a room, right? That's not how he thinks about or talks about the church. Instead, he talks about a body. In particular, not just a body, but he talks about body parts, right? He likens each of us to a body part that has a specific function based on how God has gifted them. In accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you, he says, you're all members of this body. And so focusing uh, in on this idea that you should be how God has gifted you, you should be what God has called you to be, That's how the church functions. That's the very first thing I notice in this scripture about what makes the church work. It's you, you do. You make the church work. You matter. What you in particular bring to the church matters. You might not feel like it all the time, but it's true. I mean, let me put it this way. Have you, I was just talking to, to a friend in the back, he's turning 39 next month. And for me, I'm 44, that was definitely a part where the body parts don't work the way they are supposed to all the time anymore, right? The older you get, have you ever had a part of your body not work the way it's supposed to? Maybe it's an injury, right? Maybe it's a sickness or a disease. Maybe it's a hangnail. I mean, have you ever stubbed your toe and it just blinded you uh, in pain in that moment, when a single part of your body is not working the way it's supposed to, you notice, don't you? Your whole body notices. You go all day long with that hangnail and it's always there. It affects your whole body. It's all your mind can focus on. If you've had chronic illness, you know it's always there. It takes your mental energy, your emotional energy. When a single part of your body doesn't work right, you notice. When a part of your body doesn't function the way it's supposed to, the whole body feels it. Likewise, the case that Paul is making when he's talking to this church about the church is that when you don't show up, and work the way you're supposed to, the whole church feels it. When you're not bringing your full self to the table, well, the body isn't working right then. Whether that's because you're feeling broken or isolated or you're just holding part of yourself back, the body suffers, the church, it suffers. 
So according to Paul, if the church is going to matter, believe it or not, it needs you. It requires you to be part of it. It needs you to contribute to the body, not just consume it. There's not a single part of your body that's just along for the ride, is there? I mean, maybe my hair, but other people do more with it, right? This is why at Jamestown Harbor in particular, one of our core values has always been we tell authentic stories. Authentic stories is a value for us. And what we say about that is we want you to be you and we want you to share that with others. That's hard for a lot of us. But this has been my greatest joy in the church And it's also been my deepest grief in the church. Because when people discover how important their authentic selves are to us, I mean, there's just nothing like it. When you find your people and your ability to be you and to belong and that what you are bringing matters, there's nothing like it. But also inevitably, I have story after story of people who experience this like a transaction, not a relationship. I thought it was a relationship. They thought it was a transaction. They'll consume the body rather than contribute to it. And eventually, maybe they'll go consume something else, somewhere else. And that makes me really, really sad. But what makes the church work? What makes it relevant? You do. You are an important part of that. If you are not actively engaged, we hurt. We don't work right. So as we're building our list of the four things we see that make the church work, make it matter, the first thing we notice is that you make it work. You make it matter. And the second thing that I see in this story that makes it work, makes it matter, is the idea of unity. Unity makes the church work. If we keep going in chapter 12, Paul writes, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but many. So now we start to dig into like the tensions of what does it mean to be the church? Because Paul just told us, you really matter. But he's also telling us, not only you matters in the church. For generations, Bible scholars have been pointing out to us that the English word you that we encounter in the Bible is most often a plural form of you. That commands in the Bible are almost never being directed at an individual you but instead a community of you, which kind of stinks in the English language because we use the same word for both of those things. Unless you live in Texas, then you get to say y'all, right? The Bible is more often Southern than it is from Michigan. The Bible is most often talking to y'all, not you. When we read biblical commands, we tend to just automatically, unconsciously think of them as primarily directed at me and me alone. You be better at this, that, or the other thing, right? It never occurs to us that the Bible is primarily speaking to a community, to a group. But in the Bible, the you is always plural. It's always y'all. I mean, think about the way the Bible kind of mandates what the church is in a couple of key scriptures. One from Matthew 28. Matthew 28. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I'm with y'all always to the very end of the age. This is y'all's job. Acts 2, another description of the very first church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs that were performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Everywhere you look at commands or descriptions uh, or stories about the church, it is a community of people. The church, therefore, is the agent of God's mission on earth, not the individual. When you think about the mission of God here on earth today in our community at this time in the year 2023, we are the agent of God's mission on earth, not you, individual. Christianity was never designed or meant to be a consumer project, a product. It was never meant to just be a strict way of thinking or a belief system. It was never meant to be individualistic. The yous are always y'alls. And as important as your giftedness is, as important as your individuality is to the church, so is the rest of the body. Every part matters because every part is part of a whole. And to be a body, we need to work together. And that does not always mean agreement, right? But for the body to work, the parts need to work together. So as we're digging into how Paul talks about the church, the first thing we notice is you are what makes the church work. But also unity, we together make the church work And interestingly enough, the third thing we start to notice is that diversity is what makes the church work. Because he continues on in verse 15. Just as as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we are all baptized uh, with one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given one spirit to drink, even so the body is made up not made up of one part, but of many. And then he starts to detail it out a little bit. He says, now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear would say, well, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, just stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. So again, he keeps using this metaphor. He keeps using this image of a body, pulling these things, and he's kind of doing this dance, like where he's like, you matter, but you're not the only one that matters because we matter, but also you matter. He's just kind of going back and forth, back and forth. And in this kind of phrasing, I see him saying like, you matter, but also your individuality matters. It's like he's clarifying. Just because you belong to this larger group of people doesn't mean you're supposed to be exactly the same. 
Diversity matters. A a diversity of thinking, a diversity of experiences, a diversity of viewpoints, all of that matters. And it's super, super messy in the church. I mean, to require the church to be a place of varied backgrounds or ways of thinking and experiencing the world, that's really, really going to be messy. I mean, it sure would be a lot easier if we were all the same and we all agreed on the same things all the time. But if that were true, we'd probably just be like a body of feet. And that seems really disturbing. I've noticed this kind of move away from Paul's value in the church from, at, from time to time. Because increasingly, it seems like we're, we're asked to like draw like lines in the sand, Right? To say, well, it's this or it's this. And all of those of us on this side, we have to be the church. And... But we tend to forego any kind of like nuance or relationship and make blanket statements about what's good or what's bad or who's in or who's out. And that seems to be what our culture is asking for. Because if I want to know where I can get the best rewards program, I got to know where everything is going to be the same and I can just expect it. That doesn't seem to be how Paul talks about the church. He presents an image that is much more nuanced and varied and complex. And even Christ, Christ himself is often guiding us to embrace the nuance of diversity in the kingdom. He himself is often guiding us to embrace the sex worker and reject the holy people. That seems really messy to embrace the person living in sin and reject the people who want to punish them for it. That's tough to to wrestle with. But that's how Christ guides people all the time. The church is messy people because it's made of messy people. Because diversity is messy. Sticking hands and eyes and toes and stomach acid all together is not a simple task. Which one of you are the stomach acid in this, but maybe it's me. I don't know. It's not easy though. It takes hard work. But in the midst of that, we cannot say to each other, I don't need you. I don't need your set of experiences. I don't need your viewpoint. I don't need your voice. If you want to see God working in the church, look for the mess, look for where it's messy. Which brings us to the, to the final piece of, of what I see Paul saying about like what makes the church work, what makes it matter today. Number one, you do. You make the church work. You make it matter. Number two, unity does. Us doing that together makes the church work. Number three, diversity. We don't all have to be the same in that. In fact, we need to bring our full selves and our individuality to that, that body. And if all of those things are supposed to be the church and make the church work, then the the number one thing that's going to make the church work is commitment, is a sense of commitment, Is is an idea that this is not a rewards program, but this is a set of people who are committed to bringing themselves, to doing it together, and to and to recognize the value of their diverse experiences. Perhaps you've, you've noticed this in this church, but we don't use the word membership in our church. Instead, we talk a lot about church partnership. 
And we do a partnership class twice a year in our church. And this fall, we're kind of using this series as a partnership class in a way, which is why you got this when you kind of walked in here. This outlines kind of this approach to partnership. And we'll talk more about this throughout the series. Um, But we use this word partnership on purpose and really intentionally. Some of you may have grown up in the church and the idea of church membership or even church membership classes is sort of like ingrained within you. Uh, If you grew up in a denomination, maybe you've even worked the phrase church membership papers into your vocabulary, which by the way, those don't exist. Churches anywhere don't have, there's no file with a paper in it since we've gone digital. In fact, if someone wants their church papers, we have to create a paper like for it. So it's just not a thing, but But we use the word partnership intentionally because it is what the first Christians talked about the most when they talked about becoming the body together, committing to the body together. Notice how Paul talks to a a different church that he started in the city of Philippi in Philippians 1. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work will carry it out. That's what he says, church in Philippians. And again, he's writing to a friend in the book of Philemon. He says, I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Paul always refers to his relationship with the church and the relationship they have together, not as membership, but as a partnership, a partnership in the gospel, which I get if you're sitting there listening to me, you might be like, eh, semantics, just different words. They mean the same thing. What's the different idea? Who cares, right? I care, actually, Uh, because I believe that the words we use drive different kinds of thinking. So I am a Costco executive member. I'm also a member of Netflix, have been since they were mailing DVDs. I'm really so-so, believe it or not, on the Amazon Prime membership. I don't know if you've gotten to this point, but the price keeps going up. And what I get for it seems to be coming down. Like I don't use the photos. I don't use the music. Anything I really want to watch, the good stuff on their prime video, like I have to also pay for. And the two-day shipping seems to be like here and there. So that's membership thinking, right? When we think about the things we are members of, we immediately think of this exchange. But partnership thinking is different because I am a partner in my marriage to my wife. I am a partner with my family and how we do uh, our, our culture of discipline and guiding our children and parenting. And I think, again, the difference boils down to membership requires an exchange. If I have a gym membership, I will give you my money and you will let me in the door and use the place, right? At Gemmins, I will give you all of my personal information, including what kind of power drills I like to buy, and you will give me good discounts on stuff. But partnership doesn't require an exchange, it requires a commitment. 
It requires you to commit yourself to living a certain way, no matter what the other party is doing. I mean, I can have a gym membership. That doesn't mean they care if I show up. They certainly don't. As long as I make my payments, they'll keep it open for me and let me come. But if I have a workout partner, he's going to care if I show up. Otherwise, he's going to be there at 5.30 in the morning alone, feeling like, why am I doing it? The commitment we have matters. I can't be married or be a parent without bringing my full self to the table, no matter what I'm getting out of that exchange or relationship in the moment. Because partnership requires a commitment, not an exchange. And that's why when Paul talks to these churches about what it means to be the church, he says things like, I'm super thankful for your partnership, that we are in this together. I have loved you and encouraged you. I've cheered you on. And now you're doing the same for others and you do it for me. I thank God for you, that we are committed to one another for the sake of a higher mission, for the sake of Christ. An exchange does not do that. A commitment does. And so over the, the coming weeks, we're going to explore four commitments and what it means that we believe means to be the church. Uh, but today, for the sake of simplicity, in a world of transaction, I think it is important for us to recapture what it is that makes the church work. You make the church work. You make it matter. You bringing yourself to the body. And unity makes the church work. Y'all make the church matter, coming together as a plurality of individuals, which means diversity makes the church matter. When we reject the idea that we all need to be the same and commitment makes the church work, makes it matter because none of those other three things can happen in a transaction. They only happen by a group of people who are partners together on a mission. So that's what we're introducing, not only in the series, but today. And so I always like to leave us with some next steps. And I sort of ask myself, like, how do we act on this reality of what it means to be the church and how does, how does it make the church matter? And I think for today, I just want to encourage you to wonder. Over this next week, would you wonder about your specific experience with partnering with the church? Are any of these four areas we talked about today particularly challenging to you and why? What might God be saying to you in that? Or perhaps God is presenting you an invitation to move away from transactional living and move into more partnership living. You might not know what that means yet, but wonder about it. We are a next steps kind of church and somewhere within this, this conversation today, I believe God is inviting every single one of us to a next step. So if nothing else, I'd encourage you to take the next step of engaging each of the messages that will come in, in the coming weeks. As we work through what it means to partner in the gospel together, show up for it, engage with it. Now, a couple of things before we end, I want to name that this series is not. Because whenever we have conversations like this, 
we all bring our own stories to the table. So let me be clear about what a conversation about partnering in the gospel with the church and making the church matters is not. Number one, this is not a sermon series about your church attendance. I mean, we can have that conversation. I see you, right? That's not what this is about. This is about what it means to commit and belong to the body as Paul calls it. Because the church isn't simply Sunday morning. It's not simply a sermon or songs or, or a building or a worship service. That's not what the church is. Attendance is not the goal of the church. This is a series about partnering in the gospel so that we can fulfill the great commission, that we can disciple people, that we can baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and that we can enjoy Christ's presence along the way. So this is not a series about your church attendance. Uh, This is also not a series about who's in and who's not. We do that a lot in the church. We tend to like to draw lines and say, well, you're outside of it. You're not in until you do this, right? And then you maybe can be in. But you won't hear me talk about where we draw lines for you to make sure that you are in. You will hear me talk about taking a next step in your commitment to the church. This is not about telling you what you're doing wrong. It is about inviting you to a next step with the bride of Christ, as he often refers to it. So this is not a series about church attendance. This is not a series about who's in or out. And at the same time, this is also not a series about you individually. It's a series about us. This is a series about y'all, right? It's about what you bring, but also to whom you are bringing it. It's about what it looks like when we together make the church matter in the culture we live in. Because the church is not designed for consumption. It is designed for communion. It is about the common union we share as Christ draws us together through his death and his resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. So that's a little bit of what we're not doing in this series and a little bit of what we are. Let me end uh, with this little image, this this picture. Uh, In her book, The Great Emergence, there's a missiologist. Her name is Phyllis Tickle. Funny name, really smart lady. And she gives a great image for what happens during the church, during times of great cultural change and upheaval and shifts. And she suggests that about every 500 years or so, we as a culture start to rethink everything. Everything starts to get turned upside down. Government, science, technology, and yes, even the church goes through this this shift where we, everything we assume about how things are supposed to work start to change. And that's definitely true for God's people. And she seems to think we are due right now for one of those shifts. And I can make a lot of arguments for maybe why that is happening right now. But uh, she says we're due for one of these shifts because 500 years ago in the 1500s, we had a Protestant Reformation. We had printing presses and the Industrial Revolution. And a thousand years ago, we had this great schism in the church between the East and the West that reordered the religious and political landscape across the world. And about 1,500 years ago, we saw the fall of Rome and the birth of the Catholic Church. And about 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in a stable that changed everything. 
So now I don't know how specifically accurate this is, but I do recognize the shift that is in our world today, the upheaval of so many things, including the identity and the value of the church. And the image she gives is that after every one of these great shifts, the church has a rummage sale. That's what she calls it. She calls it a rummage sale. And, and it's within this rummage sale that we, it's like we take everything and all the things we do, all the things we believe, our traditions, the way we understand it, all of our programs, all of it, and we sort of drag it out in the driveway and put stickers on it. And it's in these rummage sale moments where we have these decisions to make, where we say, well, what do we need to sell off? And what do we need to hang on to? What do we need to get rid of? And what goes in the keep pile? What things have sort of snuck into our faith experience and may have made sense back then, but no longer seem to apply? Do we, can we just get rid of that? And what must we hold on to? What is essential, no matter what era of history or the church, that must never be sold off, right? It's a rummage sale. Or to use a a, a different metaphor, in the midst of this twice a millennia yard sale the church is having, we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So it is important for us to wonder, what are you pulling out in this rummage sale? In the midst of a transactional culture, maybe it's time to get rid of uh, spiritual rewards programs. And maybe this series is an attempt to be clear on what we should put in the keep pile, what we should hold on to, and why making a commitment to God's church matters so much. Why you make the church work. Why unity and diversity and the tension of living in it makes the church work and why commitment in an increasingly commitment-less culture is what matters to make this mission work. So I'd invite you to wonder about that with me today, this week, and as we move through this series. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll close our service with a song. Lord God, I'm grateful today that um, your church still matters. Thousands and thousands of years of history uncountable ways of changing and experiencing the the church. And through all of that, God, the church still matters. You still call us out into the world we find ourselves in. You call us to each other. You call us uh, to ourselves and you call us to you. And so God, I'm grateful for that today. And I confess and recognize I don't always treat it as such. God, it is easy Uh, in our rewards-based culture to treat your church as a transaction. And God, forgive me of that, forgive us of that. God, we pray today that you would help us wonder about what more there is for us, not just in this room or in this gathering or in this quote-unquote church, but in your church. We are grateful uh, for the gift of death and resurrection that draws us and, and commonly unites us together. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.